Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Before we start, I just want to thank... I know, you can't start yet. We have to do the gavels, the gavel, the ritual. Good evening. (laughs) And welcome to tonight's meeting of the Commonwealth Club. I have to read this. The club is online at commonwealthclub.org, as well as on Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube. I'm John Markoff, and I'm a journalist and a research affiliate at the Center for Advanced Study in the Behavioral Sciences at Stanford University. It's my pleasure to introduce our distinguished guest, Roger McNamee. As many of you know, Roger is a longtime Silicon Valley investor, having invested in a range of technology companies for over 30 years. He's co-founder of Elevation Partners, a private investment fund that includes Bono, the lead singer of the rock music group U2, as one of its partners. He's the author of the new book, Zucked, Waking Up to the Facebook Catastrophe. And in spare time, he is a musician with the music group Moon Alice. Roger, welcome to the Commonwealth Club. So I read your book this weekend, and I have to say it's quite a ride. Um, first, um, how does this audience compare to a Moon, Al- Moon Alice concert audience? It's exactly the same. <laughs> I, I recognize a ton of the people who are here. But can I first say, I just want to thank all of you for coming. This is uh, the journey that I'm on was one that has been, in many ways, the most difficult thing I've ever done. And I'm very worried about the path that Silicon Valley has chosen. And I have an opportunity to take my biography and my history and use that to try to help steer us back to a better place. And tonight is part of that. And I just want to thank you all for coming and being part of a really, really important discussion. I don't know all the answers, but I think the people in this room probably have a lot of great ideas, and I'd like to hear them. So thank you all for being here tonight. So... One small bit of news. Roger told me that at Kepler's last night, he outsold Michael Lewis, which is really quite remarkable. True? So that's really quite, quite the uh, impressive start. Um, is it true that you're taking out subway advertisements in New York City? It is. Uh, there's, this is less about selling books, although that's an important thing to do, uh, than it is about, about a form of activism where you want people to be aware that products that they love, that are immensely convenient, that add a lot of value in their lives, have a dark side, and that that dark side has gotten out of control, and that we have an opportunity now to uh, wrestle that dark side to a better place. And that's the mission. And it turns out in New York... The subways are the transportation system of choice for almost everybody who works in media. And my thought process on that was I wasn't sure I was going to sell a single book, but I thought a lot of people would see the ads. And judging by the number of photos that have been sent to me on email, it's working. Was was there a meaningful difference in the reaction you got in your New York appearances and your D.C. appearances? What was it like to be at Politics and Prose, the bookstore? So every place... So this is the fourth consecutive sold-out event, which is, for somebody who plays music in a band, sold-out is a term you really, really like, right? And, um, and we don't get it often enough in music, quite honestly. So I'm really happy about this. Um, the, every event has been magical. I, the questions, and I hope this will be true again tonight, have been extraordinary. People recognize that things aren't right, and... It's not about assigning blame. It's about finding a better solution. And, you know, the people at Google, the people at Facebook, they never intended to have their technology used in ways that produced bad outcomes. And, but that's where we are. And we have to find solutions. And my job, very simply put, is to be a facilitator of that conversation. And in politics and pros in Washington, D.C., we, you know, we, which, for those of you who don't know the geography of D.C., it's in Chevy Chase. So it's about a 45-minute to 60-minute cab ride from Capitol Hill. We had one member of Congress and at least half a dozen senior staffers, including um, people from the Intelligence Committee, people from 
uh, several Senate offices and other committees. We had a really diverse group of people who were there. And the conversation was it was epically great. The one in New York, which was at Betaworks, which is a venture capital firm, 240 people who were in one large conversation. And, you know, the thing that's so cool about this is that everybody recognizes that this is this should be a really constructive process. And that, you know, a lot of things are said to me assuming that I have an axe to grind or that I'm mad at somebody or that I'm disappointed about something. And... I mean, I'm definitely disappointed, but it's not at people. It's at a situation that, that I played a small role in well, helping to bring about. That said, so you've, you know, you're in the midst of this frontal assault on one of the most popular services on the Internet in the world. Um, what's the Facebook reaction been like? Well, every place I go, except this one, they send a little note that says, we take criticism seriously. <laughs> For the past two years, we've made many changes and improvements to our product. And Roger's not been involved at Facebook for the last 10 years. That's almost a verbatim description of it. And my response is, guys, none of that is relevant, right? The problems are here. They're real. They're about the business model. And nobody at Facebook intended to have the business model go wrong. But the very same things that have allowed it to be the greatest advertising platform ever created also allow bad actors to do horrible things to innocent people. And if you automate absolutely everything, if you assume that it's appropriate to ship products the day they work and then let the people who use the product find all the flaws, you're going to have bad outcomes. And if the product is global with more active users than there are members of Christianity, you're going to have a huge impact on whole countries. And it's not because you're bad. It's not because your intentions were bad. It's because there are flaws in the business model and the culture that created it. And we need to fix those things. And we should be able to do that collaboratively. It shouldn't be a conflict. It shouldn't be I'm attacking a frontal assault on on Facebook because that's not what I'm doing. I'm doing a frontal assault on a business model that is way beyond Facebook. Facebook, Instagram, WhatsApp, Google, YouTube, Twitter, Snapchat all suffer from variants of this problem. And, you know, the longer we pretend that the good of these problems is the good of these products is the only thing we should look at the harder it's going to be to fix. I mean, we know in engineering, in engineering it says when you find a bug, you don't keep going. You stop, you fix the bug, and then you keep going. And that's all I want to do. Let's stop and fix the bugs. Talk to me about using the word catastrophe. Yeah. That's a powerful word. What, what did you mean when you said so, catastrophe? So the catastrophe is, what I'm suggesting is that the problem is still metastasizing. So we think about... You know, there's a tendency, because I first noticed this at the beginning of 2016, and it really came into focus with Black Lives Matter, Brexit, the violations of the Fair Housing Act that I saw in the fall, and then the 2016 election. There's a tendency to look at this through a rearview mirror and say, all of these things happen. And almost every... All the changes Facebook have made have been about addressing problems that showed up in 2016. The problem here is that there are new platforms. The Internet of Things, smart devices, smart speakers, smart TVs, smart appliances, smart cars. Most of them using Amazon Alexa or Google Home as the user interface and all of them essentially using Android as the as the operating system, those things are taking surveillance into places it's never been before, and they're changing the nature of it to an always-on model. And as we learned with a poor family that had a Nest home security device, Nest is a division of Google, you know, they're eminently hackable because some hacker made this device tell these people that there was an incoming nuclear missile assault which ruined their day. (laughs) And, you know, I'm sitting there going, I have no doubt that Amazon and Google have good intentions, 
But the Department of Defense is very worried about Huawei's intentions. And they're very worried about some of the other Chinese manufacturers who literally make all of these devices. But there's a cultural side to this. What do you make of the fact that people are eagerly taking these devices into their houses, knowing that they're surveillance devices? I don't think they really understand the nature of the surveillance problem. And, and people come up to me and say, Roger, my data's already out there. I can't get it back. And besides, I'm good. I got nothing to worry about. And they go, I get it. That addresses the personal component of the value of your data. The part we really haven't understood, because it's brand new, we don't have a vocabulary for it, is that there is a social value to the component, which is to say, John, you and I are friends, and we're friends with a whole lot of live connections. So it turns out, John, that you can not worry about your own data. What you can't affect is the fact that people can learn things about you by looking at my data. And about 20% of the people in this room who know me personally are connected to me in some way. And my data can have impact on you. So if you live in Myanmar in Asia, you don't have to use Facebook to be dead. You just need to be a Rohingya. Right? And if you're a believer in the EU and the United Kingdom, you don't have to use Facebook to have had your business turned on its head. Right? The social impact of this stuff is really profound. And when you think about having persistent audio surveillance everywhere, you know, you think to yourself, well, hey, it plays my music. And I go, you know what? I believe that. I mean, we have this evolutionary timer. We have this evolutionary need for convenience, right? Which causes us to do things that maybe don't make any sense in the long run to get this tiny little benefit in the short term. And my point here is I don't want to tell people not to buy this stuff, but I want them to understand that we're in a new world. And for 50 years, Silicon Valley was constrained. We didn't have enough processing power, memory, bandwidth, and storage. And so we had to solve small pieces of customer problems. And the result was that every technology product was really carefully thought out. Experience really mattered. And every product basically made the world a little bit better. But beginning in 2003, all those constraints started to come off. And so suddenly you could think about concepts like hyperscaling, which was going from zero to global in 10 years. And if you do that fast enough, by definition, you're going to skip some steps that would have been normal in the old world. In the world where customers are involved in the definition of the product, where customers are involved in the, you know, in the deployment of the product. So in the consumer world, we've gone from the traditional ad model where you're the product, not the customer. For Google and Facebook, you're not even the product. You're the fuel. Your data drives all these applications that don't deliver any value to you at all, right? Advertising was always about we get data to make the product or service better for the people whose data we're capturing. But that's not what's going on on Alexa. I mean, yes, that's Amazon's goal on Alexa, but that isn't, in fact, the aggregate of what's going on because everybody who comes in gets voice printed and you get lots of other stuff, and it's incidental to it. And I believe, I'm willing to concede that I believe Amazon's intentions are good around all of that. And I believe Google's intentions are good, and I think Facebook's intentions are good. But the products are designed in a way that people whose intentions aren't good can get access to all those same capabilities. And that scares the crap out of me, and it ought to scare the crap out of everybody. And here's the thing, you know. Google got caught tracking you on your phone, even after you turned off maps, right? And you told it not to. And I go, you know, who does that? Right? I mean, who ships a research product by bypassing the App Store? Because you know Apple will never let you ship it legitimately. So a you're research saying product that, that spies on people, right? They're, they're malevolent. No, I'm, say, I'm saying there's a flaw in the culture. No, no, I'm just saying these guys believe in their mission. They're idealistic in a really interesting way. Google believes that collecting and making available all the world's information, and Facebook believes that connecting all the people in the world is so important that it justifies any means to get it. And the ability, when you communicate downward, 
to say, well, actually, there are limits to that. That step got skipped, okay? And so people interpret the mission in their own way, and they're under a lot of pressure and strain. I mean, I don't sit there, I don't think any of these are bad people, but I do think there is something wrong in the culture where they are skipping some things that I think are really important, and they're, that weren't important when you were small, but really matter at global scale. So I want to come to that, but By the way, yes, that, about catastrophe, the other piece of catastrophe is AI, which we need we'll, to come we'll come, later we'll on. come to that too. But I want, I want to start, this is a very personal book. I mean, this is, this is your memoir in a way. It is. And would you start by, um, you know, tell us, tell us how you met Mark and, uh, you know, what's the sort of the, the root of this story? So if, for those, I don't think many of you have had a chance to read the book yet, but the book, in this book, I am Jimmy Stewart in a rear window. <laughs> this is no exaggeration. You have no idea how stupid I was at the beginning of this thing, okay? How little I knew. And you know how Jimmy Stewart's looking out the window and Raymond Burr's strangling the woman, and Jimmy Stewart's like, what the, you know? Well, that was me. So the way the book works is I have to tell you some things about my life in order for you to understand how I could possibly have been so stupid in the beginning of 2016, I started my career the first day of the bull market of 1982, and they gave me tech, which means I had a tailwind my entire professional career. You can explain everything good based on that starting date and being handed that one coverage group. So I've been really, really lucky. And what happened was I got to be an old guy, and people started to come to see me because I was one of the few people who'd been around before the personal computer industry was a real industry. And so sometimes people need help. Well, in 2006, Facebook is two years old. Mark is 22. I'm 50. And one of his colleagues calls up and says, my boss has got a problem. He needs to talk to somebody who's objective, who's been around a long time, and I'd like him to talk to you. And I said, well, what do you think? Uh, maybe we, next week, week after? He goes, how about 1 o'clock? <laughs> and I go, okay. So Mark comes over to the Elevation office, and we have a conference room that's set up like a living room with this giant video game console and a massive flat panel TV with huge speakers. So the whole room is soundproofed. So when you close the door, it's dead quiet. Mark comes in in the full Mark regalia. You know, he's got the hoodie, got the flip-flops, got the carrier bag. Sits down. He's closer to me than I am to you. We're in these comfy chairs, kind of like this. And I go, Mark, we've never met. Once you start talking, you're going to assume that everything I say is affected by what you've already told me, so I need to spend two minutes telling you what I think as context before we start. He goes, go ahead. I say, if it hasn't already happened, either Microsoft or Yahoo is going to offer a billion dollars for Facebook. And everybody you know, from your parents to your management team to your board to your employees, are going to tell you to take the money. Your venture capital is going to tell you he's going to back your next company and you are going to be just as successful again. Your parents are going to tell you with 650 million bucks, you can change the world. Those things are demonstrably true. Here's my view. I've been doing this at that point 25 years. No one in the history of Silicon Valley ever had the perfect idea at the perfect time twice. Lots of people had the perfect idea twice, but at the perfect time, that's really rare. Like, never happened. So it's not going to happen to you. If you really like this idea, and I think you should, you've got to keep at it. Because I think this idea is going to be bigger than Google is now. Which, again, this is 2006, so Google's a lot smaller than it is now. But it's really big. And in my mind, imagine it's Dr. Evil. I'm going, you're going to have 100 million users. <laughs> right? And I go... Microsoft or you or Yahoo, they're going to kill this thing. See, if you believe in the vision, you just got to tell everybody you're going to keep going. There then ensues the most painful five minutes of my entire life. It starts like this. It then goes to this. Then goes to this. It's a series of thinker poses. Now, the room is deadened, right? Because it's got these massive speakers, and it's totally silent, and it's that eerie silence of a deadened room. And if you've ever sat with somebody 
that you've just said something incredibly momentous to and you're expecting a reaction and your only reaction is thinker poses, at the one-minute mark, you're going, this is really weird. (laughs) At the two-minute mark, you're going, I'm getting really uncomfortable. (laughs) At the three-minute mark, your fingers are clawing into the upholstery and you're destroying the couch. At the four-minute mark, you're ready to scream and suddenly, 20 or 30 seconds later, he finally calms down and he goes... Everything you just said has just happened. Literally everything. How did you know? And I go, I didn't know, man. I've just been here a long time, and I know Microsoft, and I know Yahoo, and I know Silicon Valley. I know your venture capitalists, and this is how people are around here. Anyway, it turned out he had a golden vote. He, he didn't want to sell the company. So people say, well, you talked him out of it. I didn't talk him out of it. He didn't want to sell it. All I did was show him how, how to get people to go along with him, not selling him. And that began a three-year mentorship. And here's the thing. Every moment of it was delightful. I've mentored dozens of people. No one better than Mark. Did you have a mentor relationship? You'd say mentor and not advisor? It was a close enough relationship that you'd call yourself a mentor? No. Wall Street Journal used that term, okay? And so I've adopted it, okay? I don't care, okay? I went in once a week, okay? It was purely business. But you were there on a regular basis. I, w- I, wasn't, I wasn't just there on a regular basis. I helped him get rid of employees that needed getting rid of. I helped him solve the PR problem with the Linklevoss brothers, you know, bringing in his first um, uh, crisis management PR firm. Yep. And then, you know, when he needed to get a new chief operating officer, I suggested Cheryl yep. brought her, talked her into taking the meeting and helped to broker that. Perhaps. So I don't, to me, labels are labels. Call it whatever you want. I really only did two important things at Facebook, right? I helped him find a way to keep the company independent, and I brought in Cheryl. What if you told him to and, sell? Huh? What if you told him to sell? Have you thought about that? No. I've literally never <laughs> once thought about it, because it never would have occurred to me to tell him that. That would have been terrible advice. Yeah. Yeah. I don't, I try not to give terrible, I've given a lot of terrible advice for years, <laughs> but it's, I consider that a design flaw, okay? <laughs> so you hear these people who were, they were, they were friends. Why are oh, they I mean, so... The Cheryl in- relationship is unbelievable, right? Because get this, in 2000, I'm hel- or 99, 1999, I'm helping the Grateful Dead with their digital strategy, right? Because Jerry's dead. They need to keep 60 people employed. They've got a guy who is a roadie who creates a website, dead.net, and they're selling music and T-shirts, and it's working really, really well. But the darn thing is breaking, and they can barely keep it up, and they're paying way too much for it. So I have this idea, why don't we create a new platform and then federate it to every band? And we're going around, we're talking to Fish, and we're talking to Dave Matthews and Jimmy Buffett and all these really cool, Bob Dylan, all these really cool people. And Bono hears about it. And so he only knows one person he could potentially call, and he's working with Sheryl Sandberg at the, in the Treasury Department. Sheryl's the, the, uh, the uh, chief, of staff. chief of staff to the Secretary of the Treasury, and she's working with Bono to forgive the debt of emerging countries who were never going to be able to pay it back to try to start the new millennium on a fresh foot. And Bono goes, i got to find this guy in California. He works for the Grateful Dead. And Cheryl apparently bursts out laughing and says, Bono, you're not going to believe this, but my brother-in-law works for him. (laughs) And so Cheryl, when she comes out of the White House or out of the Treasury Department, comes to my offices and spends three or four weeks hanging out there to try to figure out what her next job is. And so we introduce her to John Doerr, who takes because we think Google's the right place for her. And so we play a small role in that. So the whole set of relationships, so she introduces me to Bono. I introduce her to Mark. So Cheryl was really important to me. Why are they in a de- defensive crouch now? Why won't they engage with you? I have, well, look, it's really obvious that I am not the right messenger for the two of them, and that's fine, okay? I don't, to me, they can engage. My problem is they're not engaging with the issue. And I look at this and go, I was incredibly fond of them, but realistically, I stopped being a, an advisor, we'll use your word, in 2009, and, you know, I was just a cheerleader. So I really stopped talking to Mark. I mean, we trade emails every once in a while, but, you know, I did this. If, if you haven't listened to it, I did a podcast with Kara Swisher, and she basically said, Roger, one of the problems with you is you're a pain in the ass. <laughs> and I do have this tendency to speak my mind in, um, you know, when I, when I think something's important, I will raise it even if it's politically inappropriate. And 
I suspect there were a few occasions when I did that with them. And I do think it is true of the culture of Facebook that it is, you know, in the early days, every critic was wrong except on Beacon. So Beacon was the product that basically took your offline purchases and posted them onto Facebook without your permission, which is clearly a problem. And, um, and they got so used to the critics always being wrong that I think they had just a reflexive thing against it. And when I first went to them in October of 2016, you know, I made a mistake. I, uh, Kara Swisher and, and Walt Mossberg invited me to write an op-ed because I was really concerned about the business model of Facebook. And instead of publishing it, I sent it to Mark and Cheryl. What I should have done is to rewrite it into some really neutral language. I'm not sure that would have made a difference, but... The fact that it was an op-ed, it was pretty emotional. If you get the book, it's an appendix in the book, and you can see it's not the most diplomatic thing I ever wrote. And, you know, so, so I look at this and I go, I don't know what the deal is. Cheryl is one of the greatest executives I have ever encountered. I mean, completely brilliant. And before all this happened, if you'd asked me to rank the three most impressive people I'd ever worked with in Silicon Valley, she would have been on that list. And that's basically everybody since 1982. Right. And, you know, so she bumps off some impressive people. I do not understand what's happened the last two years. There's and a Mark New York Times story to... that appeared in November where she does not come off well as a manager in times of crisis. Well, I think that is an issue. She she explained to me after Beacon that when I called her and said, I think Beacon is one of those failures of judgment that requires serious intervention and somebody needs to be ter- terminated because this was a terrible idea and it started somewhere. And she goes, Roger, we're a team. We succeed and we fail as a team. Nobody gets individual credit on the way up. Nobody gets individual blame on the way down. And I'm going, Cheryl, hang on just a sec. When everything's great, that's fine. But what about when you do a product like Beacon where you invade the privacy of people? I mean, you heard the story about the poor guy who bought an engagement ring on Overstock. And next thing he knows, his fiance's found out he's about to propose because a picture of the ring with the, the fact that it was from Overstock and the price are all published on Facebook. And everybody he knows finds out simultaneously before he's able to tell her because it happens in real time. Yeah. Right? And so that kind of thing, I said to her, but Cheryl, don't you understand that when things go wrong, nobody's going to have an incentive to tell you there's a problem. They say to people like me that, that they're responding to in talking to you, that they are uh, a- answering the hard questions. You know, they've got this eight-page eight page document you can look at on how they responded. I take it you think this is inadequate. Oh, I think you can take that as read, yes. So here, here's my problem. The problem is with the business model. It's not useful to play whack-a-mole on the things that went wrong in 2016. Not if you're in a situation, as we had two weeks ago, where there's litigation that begins because parents have noticed that their kids are running up monster in-app payment bills on Facebook games, and that Facebook employees have, in fact, enabled that. And, or that they're trying to bypass Apple's App Store with a thing that can spy on every aspect of the life of minors. I mean, minors weren't, they weren't targeting people under 18, but it turns out 20% of the population was under 18. And so I look at that and I go, you know, guys, that's a great list. And I'm really glad you're trying to do something. But remember, one of the things on that list is this vault of election ads. I don't know if you happen to notice, but the research to make sure that that was working was being done by ProPublica. And their access to the vault was cut off a week ago, which isn't exactly the sort of thing you would do if you're really serious about this. They're defensive about that. I mean, they, are, they still defend their action. They claim that was an integrated approach to stop scraping in general, and, polit- uh, and ProPublica was collateral damage. Right. And, and I can simply tell you that the Senate Intelligence Committee staffers who looked at that problem disagree. So about a year ago, uh, a high-level executive at Facebook, Adam, Andrew Bosworth, uh, tweeted, I think he tweeted, who the blank, I'll change the, is Roger McNamee. What was that about and what were the consequences? So it's a question I often ask. <laughs> <laughs> so here's what, here's what happened. So 
when I decide, I spent three months privately trying to persuade Facebook after the election that they needed to protect the people who used their product. And they said, no, no, no. There's a law here that says that we are, we have a safe harbor from the actions of third parties. And we're not responsible for that. And I said, hang on, you're in a trust business, and it really, really matters. Um, and we spent three months, and they just weren't interested. So what happened was I went looking for partners. I found a guy named Tristan Harris, who was uh, chief privacy officer. Sorry, he was the, uh, the, the, data, the uh, excuse me, design ethicist at Google. And Tristan had this whole theory about brain hacking. It was the first time I'd understood persuasive technology. And he was basically talking about how in an ad-based business online, you want to do two things. You want to create rewards to stimulate the low-level impulses that create habits. So you give people uh, notifications, you give them like buttons, all that kind of stuff that, that make them come back. And then when they're there, you want to give them things that appeal to fear and outrage because they share that stuff. And that's what creates the, the positive loops that make advertising more valuable. And that once you get people in, in that habit state, then some of those people will tip over into addiction. And those people are susceptible to manipulation from the outside. When he told me that, I all of a sudden saw what, what must have happened during the election. And we decided to team up and, you know, we go out and, and, and try to persuade people. And we start with Tristan at the TED conference, which was the most ridiculous. Well, it was the most disappointing thing I could have imagined at that time. You know, there's a thousand people in the room. They're all tech people. They're very sophisticated. He gives us impassioned speech. There's lots of applause. And afterwards, say, hey, anybody want to join this crusade? Two people gave us business cards, and neither one of them returned a phone call. <laughs> so we were like SOL on day one, okay? And we don't know anybody outside of tech. But somebody gave me a card for a staffer uh, for Senator Mark Warner and... Um, what, what winds up happening is we go there, and uh, that's the only functional committee in Congress at the time. It's the only place where Republicans and Democrats are working together. And we go, look, we know your mandate is intelligence agencies, but somebody's got to look out for the 2018 and 2020 elections on social media. And they agreed. And so they decided to hold a hearing. And uh, we give them some hypotheses. Long story short, we wind up playing a role in a whole bunch of things that I describe in the, in the book. And this Washington policy magazine called Washington Monthly says, Roger, we'd like you to take everything you've learned, the narrative and the recommendations, and do a long-form cover story for our January issue. The thing is supposed to come out on the 8th of January. It's 6,000 words. On the 1st of January, Zuck publishes his New Year's resolution, which he promises to fix Facebook which was a really surprising thing to say since literally the day before they were saying there was nothing to fix. So that catches people by surprise. My, they advance my thing three days. It comes out on the 5th, and it reads like a point-by-point rebuttal. So that's the 5th. On Monday the 8th, a whole series of things happens. Tim Berners-Lee gets a story and shares it to his entire Twitter list, which is like hundreds of thousands of people. I mean, this is an insider policy magazine, right? And suddenly Tim Berners-Lee has blown the thing up. Then I get a phone call from um, a guy who works with a very successful supporter of Democratic causes saying he's going to give a speech at Davos. And he likes my article and thinks it would be really helpful to collaborate on this, on this speech. And then Andrew Bosworth published, puts this thing on Twitter, who the bleep is Roger McNamee? And I wasn't the only one who was curious about that. Uh, I think I had, I don't know, 20, 30, 40 million in, in unduplicated television reach in the ensuing three weeks. Uh, everybody in journalism decided to find out. So it turned out, in retrospect, ironically, Andrew Bosworth is the reason the story became that's ironic. A national story. Has he reached out to you ever? Have you had ever any contact? Have I don't you know. Run him into at all. him at Roberts Market in Woodside? I wouldn't even I don't even know what he looks like. So okay. that's surprising me. You are listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on iTunes, Google Play, and Stitcher. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live for one of our five hundred programs each year. You can find us online at commonwealthclub.org. Now, back to our program. 
So actually, you're, you've turned on a very elite community. Have you had this kind of you'll never work in this town again kind of experience mm-hmm. as a result of this? Mm-hmm. Talk about it a little bit. Well, I mean, those of you who know me know that I have uh, there's sharp lines of things I will do and not do. And I had begun to notice in 2007 that the culture of Silicon Valley was producing a different kind of startup than it had produced previously. And that the more and more of the really interesting, compelling companies had business models that had an element of either predation in them or something that was really exploitative. And you know, I just I was getting more and more uncomfortable and I realized that I couldn't manage money for other people. You know, we couldn't do, I couldn't do a second elevation fund for other people if I wasn't willing to invest in the best that Silicon Valley had to offer. And in fact, my investment in Facebook was direct result of the fact that Mark had solved two really important problems, right? The internet's big flaw is that it doesn't require authenticated identity. And he required that in the early days of Facebook. And he, re- he gave you real privacy control in those early days. And I thought, wow, that's why this is going to be so successful. That he was, he was an exception to this problem I was seeing. Um, and, you know, eventually he relaxed those things because they got in the way of growing the business quickly. But in the early days, they were, they were ironclad. And when, you know, Ann and I talked about this, you know, when I first wrote the op-ed, because <laughs> it was obviously not going to be super well received because these are not people who had ever shown any openness to criticism. And it kind of doesn't matter what your intentions are, right? People receive things the way they want to receive them. And the same thing has happened to Google. I went to Google with this idea that, hey, you guys should get out of Google's, out of Facebook's lifeboat. You got a chance to do two really easy things. Embrace the global data protection res- regulation in Europe, like a religion, globally, and really support people's privacy. You can afford it, and the cost is lower to you than everybody else. And that's a hit. It's a one-time hit. Then you'll be fine afterwards. And then you can spin off YouTube so you can fix its incentives and get rid of all the pollution that's in there. And they patted me on top of the head and said, oh, you have such creative ideas. <laughs> but, but realistically, there are a lot of people who don't talk to me anymore. And you know, Bill Gates said something unflattering today. And, and what was sad was I do a lot of things wrong, but I didn't do either of the things he accused me of. Right? Neither one of those things is actually in the book. And I have so much respect for Bill. And honestly, I still have respect for Mark and Cheryl, right? I mean, this isn't about that. This is about a business model that's gone wrong, and we all collectively have a role in fixing it. Let me ask you a question from the, put on your Roger the Investor hat for a second. And, and you know, I've been lectured by capitalists is the way you want to influence a company's behavior when you're an investor is you sell the stock. You're holding the stock, I take it. I do. And I, what's, I, I'm, what's that about? Again, this is how weird I am. So I do not believe it would be appropriate for me to engage in activism in a stock that I was my largest personal holding without actually still holding it. That would leave me open to accusations that I was tank, trying to tank something okay. because I no longer owned it. My theory is if... If my actions are going to affect the stock price, I would like to share that with everybody else. And again, I'm weird. And you might make a different choice, and God bless. I don't judge anybody else's choices in this. Um, I'm doing it my own way, and I'm trying my best. And we'll just have to see how it turns out, right? Let me ask you another question about Mark. Um, When I go around Facebook, I feel this dear leader kind of phenomenon about the culture. And is he, I mean... Should he remain the leader? I mean, so, it is a cult. I, I don't dispute that. No, hang on. Th- th- seriously, this is actually, a, here's the thing. Before 2003, you could never have started a company with a 20-year-old without surrounding that person with people who are 40-plus, right? Because you'd need the experience. Mark was able to build a company of basically people out of his dorm. And that was a totally different animal. And I think a lot of the... the uh, the deep belief that people have in the mission and the lack of critical thought that goes into what they see is on the function of most of the people are in their first full-time job. So they don't have any prior experience to, to, to buffer what they see. 
And Mark is compelling, and he was so right for so long. I mean, on its own terms, Facebook may be, it's certainly one of the two greatest business models ever executed. Connecting all the people in the world, you know, when it came to computer security, that turned out to be a terrible, terrible idea. idea and a terrible... If you had real identity, yes. it was which, not a horrible idea. Which they did, and they don't. And which they don't now. And so look, let's, let's stipulate that it's not the same company they started with, but it's still that... That vision and that mission. People, I mean, the United States, we all still say we're the greatest superpower in the world. And, you know, there are certain bases on which, you know, you ought to sit there and say, well, what does that mean, right? And I think with, 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 with Facebook, we have a similar kind of thing, which is this is a truly great company, but there's some things about it that need to be reassessed, right? And the issue I would say here is if you don't fix the business model, it doesn't matter who runs it. Right? I mean, the new people are just going to inherit this model. They're going to do something more or less the same. And Mark has the moral authority to be the one to change the model. And my basic point is, I think that Mark and Larry and Sergey are one good night's sleep away from the epiphany that fixes this problem. Hang on. I'm really you're, serious you're about this. very optimistic. You're, no, I am. I have to be optimistic. This is the most depressing thing I've ever done. If I'm not optimistic but about it, it's going to kill me. You're calling out these two companies, uh, and and but isn't there a zeitgeist thing here? I mean, no, there last is. week, Tim O'Reilly um, basically challenged the fundamental sort of notion of this generation of Silicon Valley by calling out the idea of pushing to a monopoly. I agree. Which, which was the sort no, of no, the business I, strategy. Yeah, 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 yeah. Agreed. But my point is, I, I have no... I, look, it's hard enough to go after Facebook and Google, right? <laughs> I mean, Tim's right. So he, the issue is this whole notion of hyperscaling, going to monopoly, and it's this notion that all of us in this room are not actually human beings, right? We're not people with a right to self-determination. We're just a metric, right? Well, why don't you jump to your AI critique now, because this is a good point to... so. I said the reason this is a catastrophe is because we're entering a new age with smart devices on the one hand and AI on the other. There is nothing inherently wrong with either of these ideas. The problem is that we've gone after them with exactly the same design philosophies that we had for 50 years when everything was fine, but also produced the problems at Facebook and Google, which is we ship products the minute we can get the lights to come on and we let the people who use them discover the flaws, discover the bugs, and deal with the consequences. I think that is a demonstrably bad idea around AI. And there is a ton of evidence of that now. So let's sit there and think about what is the number one use case of AI. It's getting rid of white-collar jobs, right? It's automating white-collar jobs. And let's look at some of the categories that we did here. We went after mortgage lending, right? How did we train the mortgage apps? We went and got the data from the real world. We trained the thing, and it inherits all the biases of the real world in certain regions against certain religions, certain races. It's called redlining. And every one of these apps was born with redlining. Then you go look at the resume reviewing apps. What do they do? Oh, they picked up all the implicit biases of the real world based on gender and race. Now I'm sitting there going, hang on. Are you seriously telling me it never occurred to you that maybe there was a flaw in that? That you're going to create a black box with no right of appeal? And you're going to bury all the implicit biases of the real world? Say nothing of the explicit biases of the real world, which, of which there are many. Right? You're creating this arbiter, and you're going to have no ability to see how it makes its decisions. You're not going to be able to review the criteria after the fact. It just gives you the number 42, and you're supposed to accept it. At the same time, all of these companies virtually now are saying what they're about is human-centered AI. Do you yeah, think that that's false? I, I don't know. My point is, I, I, I believe... I would like to believe it's true. And so I'm going to be optimistic about this, too. Okay, So here's the thing. What is the second biggest use case? We're going to come back to the first use case in a minute. But the second biggest use case? Filter bubbles, right? Now, that's Facebook and Google. What do filter bubbles do, right? They, they basically take what you think and they make it more extreme and more rigid. They basically take away your 
your, some of your reasoning power. What's the third biggest case? Recommendation engines. Products that tell you what to enjoy, what to consume. Now, are you really going to tell me that the three best use cases of AI are taking away my job, what I think, and what I enjoy? <laughs> I would have said that that is a deeply dehumanizing vision. Okay, And I look at this and I go, whatever happened to bicycles for the mind? What happened to what we used to do in Silicon Valley for 50 years? So okay? that, That's the answer, right? We're going to solve this problem. Get back to it. How, right? Yeah, By going back, back to it, right? And, but here's the thing. We need to think about these products now differently than we did before. They're much more strategic in our lives. There is literally no reason why an AI should ever cause harm. I mean, it could be the penicillin or the aspirin of the technology world if only we would do the following thing. Test them before shipment for safety, efficacy, and implicit bias. And unlike the FDA, this is not a 10-year approval. This is a standard set of, of code applications protocols that test to see, that ha- let you see in real time, how does the decision-making work? You know, you have standard data sets that test for, for, for uh, implicit bias and things. It might take you two, three years to come up with these things, but then it's only going to take you nanoseconds to test stuff. And all this is about is going, hang on, this stuff is so important, we ought to get it right. Let's go back to Bicycles for the Mind. There's a footnote in your book that really jumped out at me. You, um, in your free time, you're a technical advisor for the HBO series Silicon Valley. Yeah. You said you were sitting talking to Mike Judge. He's the yeah. creator of it. And he said that he thought what Silicon Valley was about at this stage is this collision between the hippies and he... The hippie value system, Steve Jobs. And the libertarian. And the libertarian value system, Peter H- Haven't the libertarians won? Well, that's... Is, if anybody here watched HBO Silicon Valley? Okay, so the basic premise is you've got this little startup with a hippie value system, and then you've got this company called Hooli, which is basically an amalgam of Facebook and Google, which is the libertarian value system, and they always win, right? It takes a whole season, but they always win. And I think it's self-evident that they always win, right? And the reason they win is because, look, the PayPal mafia had the two greatest insights I have ever seen since I came to Silicon Valley. The first was in 2002, they were the first people, and I I use this term broadly because it includes their best friends. Um, Right, and this is, is, you know, Elon Musk, Peter Thiel, uh, Reid Hoffman, and all all their pals, okay? The first insight was that the Internet was going to pivot from being a web of pages to a web of people. And then they then realized that all the technical constraints to growth were going away, and so they invented hyperscaling. And if they had had a hippie value system, right, we wouldn't be having this conversation. But they had this fundamental view that none of us is responsible for anybody but ourselves and that we're allowed to disrupt whatever we like and not be responsible for the consequences. You know what? That's a value system. I get it. But there does come a certain scale where you bang into other things. And one of the problems in the markets today is that our focus on shareholder value denies the rights of all other stakeholders, employees, the communities where they live, suppliers, competitors, right? And I kind of think that that's not capitalism. Or if it is, it's a real twisted version of it. And if we want real capitalism, we need to have more balance. We need to remember, when Henry Ford came along, he was not a good guy, right? But he understood that the success of the automobile depended in its most fundamental way on the whole population having access. The world, when he started the Ford Motor Company, if you were an employee in a factory, you were a serf, right? It was a feudal model. And Henry Ford said, now I'm going to pay these people a lot better. I'm going to put them in a lot better working conditions. And he created the path that eventually took us to the middle class. 
And what's missing in this whole equation is the wisdom in these companies and their boards of directors to recognize that we, this will be a much better opportunity in the long run if they let everybody participate in it. That if they're going to treat their, the people who use their products as fuel, they're going to use them up. Let's talk a little bit about Facebook as a business. Last week or the week before, Aaron Greenspan, who started a house system at Facebook before Facebook, uh, published a report in which he called into question that number of 2.2 billion people. And the thing that jumped out at me about uh, his report was that Facebook now acknowledges that they take down three-quarters of a billion fake accounts a quarter. And when I saw that number... I realize that there's something going on that I don't understand, and I wonder if they understand it. They say, I believe, that they have 4% fake accounts and they can control that. Do you have a perspective on that? So, you know, a few things that are worth thinking about. Facebook just reported an astonishingly great fourth quarter numbers. And astonishingly great because in the United States and Canada, uh, Nielsen says that usage is down 20 to 25 percent. That's minutes on site are down 20 to 25 percent. And I forget the exact number, but that's the right range. Yet the user count is steady. Uh, and I believe that the what earnings were up like 60 percent or something. Have you noticed a difference in your news feed? I now have an ad every fifth or sixth post, and that's at least twice the density of a year ago, right? So there is a problem in the business. There, at the current rate, two years from now, it will be a classified section, right? <laughs> right? I mean, the loading has gone nuts. Now, here's the thing. They're taking down three... So they tell you, oh, no, no problem. We got our monthly active users are totally steady. And I'm going, oh, Yeah. You're taking down three-quarters of a billion inauthentic accounts a quarter, and you want me to believe that if you wanted to keep that number steady, you couldn't do it? So what's going on with the advertising industry? Why don't they have an independent audit that's objective and not part of Facebook? No advertiser has 1% share. So Facebook is the single greatest advertising platform ever created, and it is truly amazing because it has the entire audience, and it has the best targeting. And... It has a lot of minutes of use, notwithstanding the declining number. And so it's, I mean, look, I know this guy who's written a book about Facebook. And he really wants to target it at people who use Facebook and Instagram. Where do you think he's going to advertise? Right? I mean, if you're an advertiser, you have no choice, okay? To go away from that is to inflict harm. And the point is, at some level, this is what's great about Facebook, right? This is why this is so hard. Because there is a lot of utility in this thing. I mean, I have five, every fifth or sixth post is an ad, and I still buy stuff. I bought bagels from H&H the other day, right? And I get a corgi ad about every third ad, and I don't have a dog. But I really like corgis. All I get is car ads. I don't get it. But yeah, anyway, but the point is, they know something about you. Yeah, you and you and they obviously do. You and Tristan have started this organization that's focused on humane design of technology. Um, but you paint this picture of this world of the, the Google and Facebook world, in which they basically design every pixel on the screen yeah. to manipulate your behavior, which once upon a time, as I remember, was a good thing. That's called data-driven design, I think, when it was coming up. But let me ask you a specific question about Remember, redesigning. In, in that, those days, we looked at it as an engineering problem. We did. And the problem with looking at everything as an engineering problem is that you don't include all the externalities that really matter here. Right? This is how, I mean, I, I, I wasn't there, obviously, but I can totally predict what happened when Stephen Bannon came in with the idea for Cambridge Analytica. And he says to the Facebook people, so I've got this thing. I'm going to use your tools, and I'm going to completely transform elections. Right? No longer am I going to have to convince people to back me because I support X, Y, and Z. I'm going to figure out what each person cares about and focus on that. And every person is going to have their own campaign and their own, effectively vote for a different candidate. And the engineers go, wow, that's a really cool idea. Right? No, you could totally see it. And by the way, it was a cool idea. Now, has it totally destroyed democracy? Hard to say, but it certainly hasn't helped. 
said, take one aspect of, of, of your, your Facebook feed. Um, sorry. Do I, um, do I get to pick? <laughs> take uh, the endless scroll. Like, so I grew up writing for newspapers. You read a newspaper, and right. at some point you read the last page, and you put it down. How, you're, desi- you're, you're designing a humane Facebook. How, what would you do with the endless scroll? So here's the, the thing. When you get, watch television, eventually the credits scroll, right? And that's a signal to move on, right? And these products all have a bottomless bowl, so there's no signal to do that. And so you've been trained by likes and by uh, notifications and a whole bunch of other things that the next thing you look at just might be the thing that changes your life for the better. And so you keep looking, and next thing you know, it's tomorrow morning. <laughs> and, I mean, Absolutely. you know, the CEO of Netflix, Reed Hastings, famously said that one of his competitors was sleep. And this, this is not a healthy situation, okay? And i got to be honest, some of you know there was a time I carried seven mobile devices around, <laughs> And that was not healthy. I mean, it's hard to get more addicted to this stuff than I was. And in the book, I have a, the longest chapter in it is the one that explains Tristan's theories about brain hacking and all the techniques that are used. And it's really illuminating because you sit there and you go, uh-huh, oh yeah, I, yep, yep, and you can't. And the point is, all this stuff is going at the most basic evolutionary functions the weakest elements of the human psyche. And it's like magic. We all react the same way. There's nothing we can do. Now, some people react more intensely than others, right? Not everybody gets addicted, but here's the test, right? When do you first check your phone in the morning? Is it before you pee or while you're peeing? Because though, as far as I can tell in this room, those are the only two choices, right? And, you know... And so I look at all of these things, right? And the design problem for the perfect Facebook... I look at it differently. I think the real problem is the loss of authenticated identity. And so we have to shrink the the networks so that we can have authenticated identity and we have to have the equivalent of passports if you're going to change networks. And that the scale is the problem. And, you know, I would love to believe there was an easier way of doing it, you know, uh, you know, and the bottomless bull I don't think is the big problem we're, here. I think the big problem is the interference. We're down to nine minutes, and I haven't asked you about Russia. We haven't talked about antitrust, and we haven't taken audience questions. So let's start to take audience questions. Um, let's start with Russia. How do we prevent the disinformation campaigns launched by Russia and other enemies of the state? So I take great hope from the 2018 midterms. There was a significant minority of Americans who chose not to get their political news from Facebook, in fact, chose not to get news at all, and decided to get engaged actively. I think the most important thing is to remember that democracy depends on an engaged citizenry. And in 1950, every American was, to one degree or another, an active citizen. And beginning in 1950, on the consumer packaged goods side, we said, you can have everything your way. And we slowly but surely converted the population from active citizenship to passive consumption. Facebook and Google come along and they do the same thing for ideas. They give everybody their own Truman Show with your own set of facts, right? The problem isn't external interference. The problem is that we each can have our own world. And that if you're in that world long enough, There's no technology fix. You can't cure a person who believes in flat earth with technology. You can't cure a person who denies the impact of climate change. So I think that let's not worry about the foreign actors. Everybody and their grandmother can do this. And I'm way less worried about what the Russians did than I am about what Bannon did. I'm much more worried about the fact that that hyper-targeting can be used to destroy democracy, and that that's illegal. So put on your black hat for a second. I don't have a black hat. Design for the 2020. What what aren't we thinking about in 2020 that we need to think about? Well, I mean, we have to be really careful about deep fakes. So these are videos and audio that appear to be authentic, which are not. And, uh, you know, my guess is the next video or audio you hear about me will be a test of that, because why not? (laughs) Um, And, and... I, so I'm really, really worried about that thing. But I think you're seeing it now. 
Look at what's going on in Virginia, right? That wasn't an accident. That was a campaign that started with a thing about uh, abortion and then goes to the governor, then the lieutenant governor, then the, secretary, the attorney general, right? I mean, that was a campaign. Look at the systematic destruction of the women candidates on the Democratic side, right? Again, look at what's going on around the world with Facebook taking disinformation. You've seen it in France with the with the uh, yellow jackets. You've seen it in all these other places. Look at what's going on with health information. The vast majority of the health information you find on Facebook is factually inaccurate. And so you see this whole measles thing that's going on where the Russians are trying to basically turn the measles outbreak into a disaster. And this is all because of the architecture of these products. This is all because of the business model. You can't, the, the whole list that Facebook gave you is like irrelevant. I mean, this stuff is metastasizing before our eyes. And the only way to get away from it is to stop trusting what we see. The fact that it comes from a friend does not mean it's real. Okay? And what we need to do is all roll up our sleeves, join the equivalent of an indivisible group, and get involved and take back the country. Right? That's what we got to do. So, you have a, you say a lot about remedies, and we haven't really talked about that yet. But there's no, but they a good can buy the book because it's all in there. It, it is, and this question speaks to that. How can we establish the infrastructure for fiduciary data bankers to successfully wrest control from surveillance capitalists like Facebook? So you talk so, about data f- fiduciaries. Yeah. So the concept of a data fiduciary is, if you think about this, a lawyer or a doctor or a clergyman is not allowed to take the things that they learn in confidence and profit from them, right? They have to use that and protect it. I have a really simple question. Why are credit card processors allowed to sell your transaction data? That strikes me as morally wrong. They asserted eminent domain on your data, and they sell it because nobody told them to stop. I think it's time we told them to stop. Why are people allowed to sell your geolocation data? Because you marry that to the credit card data, and they have a complete picture. So if you look, remember, if you're not on Facebook, you're not on Instagram, it doesn't matter. They just buy your credit card data. They get enough geolocation data to figure out which one is you approximately, and you're done. Right? And, you know, because if they have your credit cards, they can reconstruct all these things about your roots. Right? I mean, if you got Google Maps, you're totally hosed. By the way, here's one of my remedies. I'm playing a game to avoid Google. It's called Frogger. <laughs> Google is the river. The alternative products are the logs, and I'm the frog. <laughs> so I hop from DuckDuckGo to uh, Safari to the Microsoft uh, productivity apps. And i got to tell you, it's really inconvenient in comparison to Google. But it gives me great satisfaction. Every once in a while, I'm on the web. I hit a a thing for a restaurant and the map opens up it's Google Maps and I'm in the river my high score is two months top that (laughs) where do we go to fix this credit card data problem do you do it in Congress do you do it at the FTC how how would you start I'm starting in Congress okay and but here's the thing we have way more power than we realize even if we're addicted we still have the power to alter our behavior. I mean, I can't get off of Facebook. I love Facebook. And, but I don't do any politics, and I don't get any news anymore. And I used to do a ton of both. I don't share anything that might inflame somebody else. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that's really powerful. But the other thing you do is you have a voice. Our elected representatives know there's a problem. They need to hear from us if we're going to make a change. And in the Bay Area, we have the bravest members of Congress that exist anywhere. Remember... Um, Jackie Spear has the headquarters of Facebook and YouTube. Anna Eshoo has the headquarters of Google. And they both understand this issue, and they are publicly standing up to try to find answers. We need to support all of these people. The whole Bay Area delegation is, to one degree or another, totally supportive of this stuff. And it's our job to give them the voter support to make that happen. One more... We are now at two minutes, and so we're, I'm told, at our last question. And we have a hard stop? We do, yes. Can we have an after? <laughs> you can. So um, this is an interesting one. I have an idea. I have ideas that would fix Facebook and other social media in society in a big way. 
but as an altruistic nonprofit founder, I'm also tired and too weak from effectively giving away, quote, trade secrets and IP, never managing to get paid. Do you think the current crisis is an opportunity for the investment community to support the nonprofit community? That's a great question. My biggest problem with trying to do an alternative to Facebook and Google is I don't see any sunlight hitting the ground close enough to them to actually do something, that they've done a really effective job of creating moats of intellectual property and network effects that basically make it impossible for startups to build critical mass, whether they're not-for-profit or for-profit. And that's why we need antitrust law. We need to just clear spaces. I frankly think that what we should also be doing is be open to treating this industry, because it's so strategic, the same way we treat oil and gas, farming, and so many other things, which is to provide incentives at the government level to create alternatives to what exists today. That I don't see why it's more important to find oil today than it is to create a safe, tolerable Internet. Very good. Thank you. We're out of time. Our thanks to Roger McNamee for joining us tonight. We also thank our audience here and on radio, television, and the Internet. I'm John Markoff, and now this meeting of the Commonwealth Club, the place where you're in the know, is adjourned. <laughs>